Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I was told not to talk about this with you. When we announced that uh, Canada Land would be coming here to Saskatoon to talk about Colton Bushy, uh, received comments, public comments on Facebook, emails. What are you doing? Why are you talking about this? This is before the courts. This is not for your podcast. But of course, we have been talking about this. The RCMP has been talking about this. The media has been talking about this. The farmers of this province have been talking about this. Many of you have been talking about this. The whole country has been talking about this. This is a bit of what that sounded like. Debbie Baptiste's son, Colton Bushy, was shot dead last week near Bigger, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan farmer Gerald Stanley is free on bail, waiting to learn his fate. He's charged with second-degree murder in the death of 22-year-old Colton Bushy. Colton Bushy and his friends had pulled off a rural road and onto a farmyard last week when the shooting took place. My buddy was going there for help, you know, and then we had a blowout and everything, and, and he ended up taking somebody's life. So you weren't going there to steal or attack anyone? Or? No, we didn't even have nothing stolen in the vehicle, you know, and we're just coming from the river. 
Racial tensions worsened with Bushi's friends saying the group needed help with a flat tire. The case has set off a firestorm, exposing what many say are long simmering racial tensions in the province. This to me is not a race issue. This is being turned into one and it's just getting out of hand. You're afraid to say anything and if you come across the wrong way, people just label you racist and I think that's what's happening here. This is, it doesn't matter what color the person is. It's if you're defending yourself, then you defend yourself. We are aware of reports of rural residents carrying firearms, carrying guns in anticipation of or in preparation for a confrontation is not safe for anyone. And we don't want anyone facing potential criminal investigations. We've had guns on us since day one. Um, just because it's in the media and the news now shouldn't be a reason for them to all be scared. We've had them anyway. We're just making it known if you're coming into our yard stealing our stuff, like they got to be aware that this is the way we live. This is the way we uh, have to live in the country. We got to protect ourselves from whether it's theft or if it's an animal. On social media, a slew of hateful comments like these. Farmer that killed one person for trespassing, shame on you. You should have just shot all four of them and buried them out back. Ben Couts, a councillor from the municipality of Browning, Saskatchewan, posted a comment about the shooting, which stated, In my mind, his only mistake was leaving witnesses. Today, the municipality accepted his resignation. There have been concerns with the police investigation. The SUV Bushi was shot in sat in a Saskatoon towing company's lot before the defense looked at it. Chris Murphy is the lawyer representing Bushy's family. He says one month after the incident happened, he learned the vehicle Bushy was sitting in when he was shot and killed left police custody during the investigation. The missing car could have an effect on the upcoming trial. Because evidence has been destroyed, Stanley's lawyer could apply to have the second-degree murder charged against him stayed. I want justice so I don't take it in my own hands. My brother was, my brother was a man of his community, that's all I can say. There are so many stories. There's the, his side, their side. There's two sides to a story. And then there's the truth. A local pastor told the Saskatoon Star Phoenix that Colton Bushy is the Rodney King of Western Canada. This is a divisive story, and we are not here tonight to determine whether or not Gerald Stanley is innocent or guilty, and we are going to respect the court's publication ban, but we're going to talk about this tonight. We're going to talk about how this is playing out in our conversations, and we put together uh, an incredible panel to do that. To my left is Betty Ann Adam of the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Rob Innes, Associate Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan, and Mylon Tatusis, who is a doctoral scholar also of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. Can I have a big round of applause for them and for yourselves for coming out tonight? This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Paula Allen, Ian Borsuk, Kathleen Angus, Travis L. Brown, Donnie Lawton, Katie McIntyre, Andrew Kmillar, and is there someone here who supports us on Patreon? What's your name? Terrence Jordan. Terrence Jordan, come to the microphone and please tell me why you decided to be awesome. Even when I feel like I, I have an idea where you're going with a comment about a story and I think, oh, Jesse, you always surprise me and come out with something that 
I wish I had thought of, or probably many of us wish we had thought of. And I just love hearing your viewpoint and, and the guests that you have are incredible. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. And guys, this episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks, of course, is the cloud accounting service that kind of let me do CanadaLand in the first place. They are also the accounting solution for any small business, entrepreneur, anybody who has to send invoices for any reason. This is the easiest and simplest way to do it. It makes you look really professional. It gets you paid quicker. It is stupidly easy to use. There's no reason not to try. 30-day free trial, no credit card required. If you do become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you, and you will be doing this show a favor. Betty Ann, like I said, we're not here to weigh the evidence to try the facts of this case, but we do have to have a fact-based conversation, and I want you to give us a reporter's perspective on what you just heard. Uh, not just the facts as they've been reported about the story, but the story of the story itself. Bring us up to date on the story, if you, if you can. Just an overview. Uh, most people are familiar with the story, but we can't assume that everybody is. On August 9th of last summer, Colton Bushi, who's a 22-year-old Cree man, was with four of his friends. They had been out swimming that day, and they were um, and drinking. They were on their way home, and they ran into car prob problems. They had a flat tire, as we heard in the thing. They went into this farmyard, and at this point, we are not sure exactly what happened. We know, though, that the windshield of the car apparently was uh, broken by someone outside. There was verbal exchange. Two of the people from the car ran away. Apparently, Gerald Stanley, who was uh, the father at the house there, 55 years old, 
fired three shots, apparently. Um, one of the shots killed Colton Bushy. The RCMP put out a news release letting people know about this. They included the fact that the people uh, in the vehicle were being investigated for theft. Mr. Stanley was arrested. He was released on bail nine, 10 days later. There's a preliminary hearing coming up in April. The information that the RCMP provided that Colton's friends being questioned for a, a theft investigation, th they were never charged. That's right. Um, that, that was one of the things that was, um, for me as a reporter, was a little bit unusual because the RCMP are usually very circumspect when they are um, investigating people and prior to charges being laid. From time to time, we'll hear about things. We'll call the RCMP or the municipal police and ask, is, you know, is this matter being investigated? And the normal response is that we don't talk about investigations until charges are laid. And then even when the, the news release comes out that charges have been laid, they don't release names until you've been to court and the person's actually been uh, charged formally. So that, that was a little unusual. I think that's a really relevant point for us to kind of proceed from because right from that point on, the messaging of how this was represented became so contentious. That abnormal piece of information, the inclusion of that, spoke directly to what was probably a very loaded situation to begin with. The fairness of the system, law enforcement and the courts, or the perception of fairness was so important and, and right off the bat we had um, indigenous leaders saying you have essentially provided the public with a counter narrative the justification for what happened when the rest of Canada is told that this is stoking racial tensions what are those pre-existing racial tensions in a Saskatoon and Saskatchewan context well first off I grew up on in rural Saskatchewan I grew up on, on Palm Acre First Nations 45 minutes west of of North Balford and, and for me, it has been very clear since I was brought into this world that there is a certain perception that settler Canadian society has of Indigenous people. And I don't want to get into like naming the actual stereotypes. They are very unsettling and they're very uncomfortable to look at. However, they're still very real. When we're looking at the Colton Bushi case and the incident of the shooting, those were just beneath the surface. They were so easy to gain access to, these assumptions, these preconceived notions that a lot of people heard growing up. In all honesty, that had been reinforced by the media time and time again throughout the years. So they were just an arm's length away when we're looking at these preconceived notions of indigenous people. And they're very accessible. They're conversations that have been maintained since contact, since migrations west, since, since you know, the founding of, of, of Canada. These are very real, tangible, observable stereotypes that are here. It's interesting, isn't it, that we call it the Colton Bushy case. Mm -hmm. It's the Gerald Stanley case. Yeah, exactly. The subject matter is obviously, you know, being linked to Colton Bushy, a brown body on the, in the prairie provinces. But the, some, somehow the narrative has shifted to, was he there with good intentions or bad, or were his friends there with good intentions or bad? Rob, what's your take on this? There was a couple things about the way that the information came across. The way in which the RCMP news release, and then the way in which all news media, from local in Saskatoon to national, they all framed it in 
fear for property. All the news media saying that there is this fear in rural Saskatchewan of crime, that, to me, unlocked people's inhibition to be public in those comments. People talking about crime, they're really talking about their fear of young Indigenous men. And this is something that's very uh, much embedded in Saskatchewan. I mean, I have had three first-year white female students tell me that in order to get into the gangs, they have to rape a, a white girl, right? So the gangs, of course, is Indian gangs, and they are, of course, young indigenous males, right? Well, you know, there's no way that this is true, but in three different years, three different people... Yeah, just Saskatoon, to clarify, they're saying that they heard this? This is what they heard, right? This is what they believe, uh-huh. right? That, of course, has impact on how white women will respond to young indigenous males, also how white men will respond to young indigenous males. And I think that what we see is white men believe that their job is to protect their property and their women, right? And so they will then respond to young indigenous males based on that. Betty Ann, are we giving short shrift to, you know, if people are getting robbed, there's, they have a right to... to put, police protection, they have a right, I suppose, to protect their property. Is this a legitimate story that is somehow getting turned into something else? I mean, you, you, you see these stories come and go through, the, through the news cycle. One of the things you have to consider is the timeline of the information coming out. The first information came from the RCMP. When the media, when the reporters respond, hear about a story, the first thing you do is you gather up all the available information. And the first place you always go is to the RCMP or the police for the official story. That's your starting point and then you go. You go and get what you can get. But you start with the official information. That's where the idea was introduced about property. In that initial news release, it wasn't just a homicide. The element of property came in and we've heard some comment on that. Immediately after that, one of our own reporters got in the car and he was out there. And he went and spoke to one of the men who was in the car. That is excellent journalism. And like for the Star Phoenix, I'm very proud to say that it was our paper who did that first. And we, as quickly as possible, like 24 hours after that happened, we had the voice of the people who were in the car saying what happened. And so... The story, the narrative that most of you have heard came from the media going out and doing their job and gathering first-hand account of what happened. And it's an interesting thing when you talk about this being the Colton Bushy case. That's a two-sided thing because it, I'd never kind of made that connection before because we all know the Kurt Dagenet case, the guy who killed the RCMP officers. And people don't call it the Robin Cameron story. They call it the Kurt Dagenet story. So that's a very good point. However, I personally like that it's the Colton Bushy story because as an indigenous person, I want people to not forget the name of that innocent victim. So it's a kind of a two-edged sword there. But should it be called the Gerald Stanley story? Maybe. That's a, it's a good point. The next 
big piece of information. There was a, people, reporters were out there gathering as much information as they can, but the next big influx of information came from the Globe and Mail reporting on the information to obtain a search warrant. And that's where a lot of the information that normally, and this is another interesting thing, when the, there's a bail hearing, the Crown Prosecutor tells the judge the information they have that makes them say why this guy should stay in, in custody. It's normally subject to a publication ban because it could affect the person's right to a fair trial. They don't want a lot of information going out there because you might, you're listening to this, you might be called to the jury. Usually an information to obtain is sealed. And, and not always, sometimes they're left unsealed and journalists will often go to the courthouse and try to get that in information to obtain a search warrant, but they're very often sealed. And in this case, it wasn't. And because the reporter was able to get all that information, a whole flood of information came out as well that added to the story and has added to the narrative. I mean, this is a story that has evolved through the press and through social media in ways that will affect the trial, uh, which we should talk about. But I don't think we can talk about it without actually talking about what was in that Globe piece. So Joe Friesen in the Globe, he obtained the information to obtain a warrant. This is a police document that he somehow obtained. Uh, and it basically it collects the eyewitness testimony of, of the people involved. And I'm just going to read you a summary of it. Sheldon Stanley, Gerald Stanley's son, told police that he and his father were working on a fence when the Ford Escape pulled onto the property, according to Friesen's story. All of this is according to Joe Friesen's story, which is according to the ITO. He saw the Escape stop near a pickup truck. He saw a young man get out of the Escape and get into the pickup. Gerald Stanley's son is almost certain, according to this story, that the man who he saw get into the pickup truck was not Colton Bushy. He heard the family's ATV start up shortly after, and he saw this unidentified young man go into the pickup. He said that this is when he and his father started to yell, prompting the young man to jump back into the Ford Escape. Sheldon told police that the Escape swerved towards him. He said he was carrying a hammer and used it to smash the Escape's windshield as the Escape was reversing. At this time, Gerald Stanley reportedly kicked in the vehicle's taillight. Sheldon Stanley told police that the escape then pulled forward, colliding with another vehicle parked in the Stanley's driveway. At this point, he told police that two men got out of the Ford Escape and ran away, leaving Colton Bushy and two women behind in the escape. Sheldon Stanley says he then ran back into the house to grab truck keys and told police that he heard two gunshots when he was inside, followed by a third as he stepped out. Gerald Stanley told police according to Joe Friesen's article, that he ran to a nearby shed after he kicked out the escape's taillight, where he grabbed and loaded one of two handguns registered to him. He told police that he came out of the shed and fired two shots in the air. This next part is what Kiora Watani, who was with Colton Bushi in the escape, told the police. This is what she's quoted as telling the officers. She said that Bushi was with her in the backseat of the escape he climbed into the driver's seat after they struck the parked car in an effort to drive away, but the escape wouldn't move. She told police Gerald Stanley walked up to the driver's side window and fired a third shot into the back of Colton Bushy's head. 
Ms. Watani said that she asked Ms. Stanley why they had killed Colton. And she says that Ms. Stanley replied by saying something about property, something about what happens when you come onto people's property. All of this is untested in court. This is a combination of what everybody present told the police. And I think it's worth noting that based on this document alone, nobody's account contradicts anyone else's account. Rob, you brought up earlier the media framing this as about property. I know that there are a lot of people in, in the farming community who say just the opposite, and I think that they, they, could, they could argue effectively that the media definitely covered the racial angle up and down. Right from the start, we had audio tape and videotape of the Bushy family, the human story, the treatment of Colton Bushy's mom by the cops. It's not like this was ignored. What you'll read on the Farmers with Firearms Facebook page is that the media made this about race, mm-hmm. and they should have made it about property. Because right. they don't care who comes on their property. They're going to protect their property no matter what. And this isn't about any kind of racism. Right. They say that the few racist comments on their Facebook page have been blown out of proportion, and they remove anybody who says racist things. This is what I was able to read that is still up on that Facebook page. These are public comments. Carrie Andrew wrote, We are just protecting what we worked hard for from those who are too lazy to work themselves. Han Smith wrote, Anyone who disagrees with an Indian or stops them from stealing your farm gas is racist. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. Darren David Gibbons, and this is in all caps, A man should have the right to protect his home and family and the things he has worked hard for. Shoot them down like gophers. That will end things right quick. I'm leaving out a bunch of them, but I'll end with one that was the most chilling for me. Sandra Mayer wrote, I had thousands of dollars worth of equipment and tools stolen from my acreage. The RCMP told me, if I shoot them, push them into the house after I was done. That's what somebody said on Facebook. I have no idea if the RCMP told her that or not. I don't think any of those people think they're racist. I think that a lot of Canada is watching what's playing out here and are, are a little bit shocked by what seems to be an acceptable discourse that is uh, explicitly racist. Mylon, the comments I, I read were shocking to me. Did they surprise you? No. <laughs> uh, 100% out in the open, they do not. And what's more shocking to me is, is how they come across as shocking. Um, in particular in the Western Prairie provinces, because when we're looking at the journalism or the media coverage, we have to keep in mind that journalists and and people coming out to cover these stories aren't necessarily trained or raised to view the history of Canada, Canada critically. So, for example, here we're in Treaty 6 territory. We have a relationship with settlers coming here to share and in peace and prosperity on this landscape. And the reason I'm mentioning that is specifically we're seeing a paradigm and a system at play that, that's oppressing indigenous people. That has been sort of, you know, in all honesty, a lot of the settlers here in the room, you have been fed settler colonial myths about the history of your country, about this, this, this expansion west. Because the history of Canada, from my perspective, is, is, is a very brutal, aggressive history. It's not necessarily south of the border stuff, like we see in the United States with the, the U.S. Indian Wars. But we are seeing injustices play out from day one with the coming of settlers into this landscape. 
And my people have been tasked since 1876 to try to live in peace and prosperity with the settlers in this community. However, when we're looking at the actual landscape, there's a lot of tensions there. One of the big things right now for me in my research is we're looking at the Western Prairie provinces literally feed Canada, agriculture. Agribusiness is big in Saskatchewan, we know that, right? Maybe that's partly why a lot of people aren't questioning you know, the, the farmer work ethic in this, in this province. But why is it my people are hungry on this landscape when our lands are literally feeding Canada and literally feeding the world? Saskatoon is an uh, urban environment on the prairie. Rural Saskatchewan has a different dynamic. It's a completely different landscape out there. I mean, there's a veneer of, of smiling and giving that classic Saskatchewan, you know, hand on the steering wheel wave when you see somebody pass. But guaranteed that if you start talking politics, if you start talking economics, if you start talking, you know, why Indigenous people are impoverished on our own lands, there's going to be some racism that comes out. Um, so there is a big urban-rural divide in Saskatchewan. And, and that's partly most likely why media is ineffective and ineffective in some cases, and, and, and if you're looking at it critically, is because of that divide. Betty Ann, um, would you have published what Joe Friesen published, the ITO? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been pretty happy to get that. Well, uh, you're always trying to get as much information as you can, but you're subject to the law. And so um, that informations to obtain are often sealed by the courts. It doesn't stop reporters from going to the courthouse and asking for them, but nine times out of ten, especially if it's a high-profile story, you'll find that by the time you get there, they've already locked it down, and it's not available. Do we um, know that this one was not sealed? Because he just said he obtained it, which could mean a number of things. Oh, well, I assume that he went to the courthouse and got it. It's hard to imagine this being leaked. I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that if he, if that document had been sealed and he was using it, then he would have been in a clear violation of the publication ban and he'd have heard about it from the Crown. Uh -huh. There were more revelations through the media, the chain of evidence being potentially broken with, right. the, with the Ford Escape being found just sitting in an open, roofless uh, tow lot. Uh, as we heard in the sound uh, montage at the beginning, potentially giving the defense uh, an argument that the evidence is inadmissible, who knows what the, where they're gonna go with it. Again, getting back to, are the cops doing their jobs fairly, competently? I feel like a lot of this story has somehow been twisted to whether the, the shooting itself had any kind of racist motivation, whereas the more live question is, not would Colton be alive were he not indigenous, but were he not indigenous, would he get any different treatment? Would, he, would there be more justice for Colton? One of the things about the vehicle, first off, I will say that um, as far as I can tell, there's only one source of that information, and that would be the, uh, Chris Murphy, who's the lawyer uh, who's representing Colton Bushy's family. And that's an interesting thing in itself, because normally a a fam the family of a victim doesn't have its own lawyer. The only two lawyers normally involved are the defense lawyer for the accused and the crown prosecutor who represents the state. Um, so that's an uh, unusual thing, to have another party in there. It, it, and, uh, and he's the one who told uh, reporters about finding the car in the tow, 
tow truck lot instead of in a police compound. That information has, as far as I can tell, has never been verified by any other source. Um, apparently the towing company told reporters, call the RCMP, was all they would say about it. The car, uh, according to Murphy, the vehicle wasn't there the second time he went back to get photos of it. As a reporter, it doesn't feel entirely solid, and I think a lot of reporters have taken it as uh, gospel truth. And I'm not saying that somebody said an untruth. I'm just saying that as a reporter, normally we would verify something from more than one source, especially something that's important like that. It's one of the unusual things in this case. Um, in covering courts over the years, and to use the Kurt Dagenet shooting case again as an example, um, the vehicles involved in that were all seized by the RCMP and kept in a locked compound, not just in a compound, but inside a building so that they wouldn't be subject to the elements. Those vehicles remained in the police custody for many, many months. And in the trial itself, we spent at least a half a day listening to the evidence of the chain of who was holding the car and where was it and, you know, and, and how do we know that it was secure. So it was a big deal. And so it was this is most unusual if this vehicle was in fact let out of their custody. And then another thing, just, I, just because I, I, I keep thinking of it, and it's a little bit off track, but a little bit on the same. When Gerald Stanley was taken to the courthouse for his bail hearing, he was dressed in his um, prison garb, right? The big orange sweatshirt. And when photographers tried to take his picture, they couldn't get his face because his face was covered up with something orange. And, and I thought, oh, I hate it when they do that. You know, you can't get a picture of them. And I thought about the other guys who, that I've seen do that. And usually they take the shirt they're wearing and pull it up over their heads or they cover their faces. But when you look at it, Gerald Stanley wasn't doing that. He was using an orange t-shirt. He was wearing handcuffs and a sweatshirt and he was holding an orange t-shirt that he used to cover his face. It's what up do, to what the, do you make of that? What I make of that is that it's exceedingly unusual for the RCMP to allow a prisoner to be holding something in his hands when he goes to court when he's in handcuffs. I've never seen that before. I don't want to uh, play any kind of predictive games here, but I am curious about whether our focus in the media, the public focus, how much it matters and how much it's going to play a role. I mean, maybe I'll just get you guys to chime in on this. Colton Bushi was either an inspiration in his community and the most optimistic and promising uh, young guy and, and uh, who was doing all sorts of training to, to help people, firefighting courses, and had this amazing future in front of him, and with his friends had a flat tire and wanted help. And ended up getting shot in the back of the head, or they were vandals, or they were thieves, or perhaps some combination of all of this. How much of this character evaluation are, are, do you think is, is where the story is heading, and how much does it matter? The focus seems to be going into what kind of person was he like, but the question should be, but well, what kind of person, what were the motives of the suspect? It seems like the victim will be put on trial, which it seems kind of odd in a murder case to be evaluating and assessing the victim's 
character when the person who's charged with the murder, at least at this point, it does seem like that is the case. We don't know anything about Stanley when we usually know a lot about a suspect. If there is a self-defense case that Stanley was acting in self-defense when he shot Colton Bushy, we, we don't have that story yet. Maybe we'll get it at trial. Mm -hmm. But we haven't even heard that narrative yet. Mylan, um, I won't ask you to speak for any particular community, um, just for yourself and your own sensibility about this. It's hard to think of a greater statement of inequality than, than if there is a, uh, a sense that people can be murdered without consequence. Mm -hmm. If that is the conception at the outcome of this, what do you think that is going to mean? And I'm not even just talking about will there be protests, will there be riots. I'm talking about what does this mean for this story we're telling ourselves of reconciliation in this country right now? Well, what has all the loss we've experienced in the past meant? Because <laughs> there is still missing and murdered Indigenous women. You know, there are still missing cases of, of Indigenous people who, who are... who who don't have any justice brought to them, historically speaking, and that's the, what we have to realize is that Colton Bushi and, and what took place last summer is not just a singular event to indigenous people. <laughs> There's an ongoing history and, and reality that's been playing out since for a very long time. I mean, let's, let's use the Husky oil spill, for example. You know, There's families who have been involved with the Bushi case who, who've, who've been doing their best to, to come to terms and figure out what took place with the Husky oil spill in the North Saskatchewan River. So these are compounding impacts and have ramifications to who we are as Indigenous people and how we live our lives. If Gerald Stanley gets left off the hook, I, I can't speak, like you said, for any specific community, but the question I, I have to ask is, is, what is rock bottom for Indigenous people? Where is that? And how does it look? How, how deep do we have to go? And that's even a question to settler Canadians, is, is what is rock bottom for this country? You know, how far are we willing to carry forth this agenda of oppression and settler colonialism? Right? We, we lost a really great leader, Arthur Manuel, known all across Canada, and he brings forward the question that there's not enough land for Indigenous people to, to prosper. <laughs> right? And we're looking at, like I said before, Saskatchewan. You know, there's, our, our lands are literally feeding the world and we're starving. And, and there's really big injustices playing out. But that's the question I have to ask is, is what is rock bottom and, and when are we gonna get there? Um, I, don't, I don't know any formulation of, of, of any you know, tactics other than, than what indigenous people have been trying to do in terms of educating, in terms of you know, getting our education, in terms of doing events like this and, and trying to elevate the consciousness of, of, of Canadians and, and non-natives and even our own people. But, but that's the question is, is, where is rock bottom? I'd like to thank our panel very much. Thank you. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me, and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This show is produced by Katie Jensen. Thank you to the Winteruption Festival, to Kirby and everybody here who helped us put on the show, and thank you to our live audience. Thank you.